Welcome to the worst nightmare of all. Reality. Explore the lesser-known stories of our unknown world. Join the pursuit of the paranormal with Ash and Greg. Fearscape, a paranormal podcast. Part of the Fearscape Media Network. Prepare to be spooked. <laughs> New episodes every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms. Find out more at fearscapepodcast.com. Hey everyone, I'm Greg. I'm Ash. We're Pursuit of the Paranormal which you'll probably know because you're listening to our podcast. But there are several ways that you could support the show. Um, you can visit our merchandise store where we've got loads of clothing and other bits and bobs there for you. And we also have launched our Buy Me A Coffee campaign. Tell me a little bit more about that, Ash. Yes, you can support the show on with a one-off donation. Or you can also join our membership scheme, which gives you different benefits, including shout-outs on the show, discount on the merchandise store, early access to episodes, bonus episodes, all of these different levels of membership. It just helps us carry on doing what we're doing. So you can visit all these places and more at our linktree.com forward slash Pursuit of the Paranormal. So today we are joined by Dr. Irina Scott, who's joining us from the USA. Welcome, Irina. Thank you for coming on to the show. Hi. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. So uh, what I noticed about yourself is you've got quite a big ed educational background. Uh, we've got a PhD from the University of Missouri, and he did your postdoctorate with Cornell University, so it's quite impressive. Um, so I just sort of wanted to know, before we start talking about UFOs and that sort of thing, I just sort of wanted to know a bit more about your educational background and what you do, like for, or what you did do for work before UFOs came along. I was mainly in science. I started out and wanted to be an astronomer and majored in it as an undergraduate and looked for jobs and nobody would hire me. I couldn't even get an application because I was a female and it was male only back then. And so I continued trying to get into astronomy, even though I couldn't get into an actual job, but they were mapping the moon at that time and they did hire females in cartography. So I became a physical scientist type of cartographer for a while, but I never got to map anything, work on anything except Earth. And so I tried another job and I went to the DI, Defense Intelligence Agency, and I got a real high security clearance and was working on using satellite photography. For a while, I worked in an air order of battle section where you identify airplanes using the satellite photography. But I still couldn't get into astronomy. <laughs> and then I got married and my husband lived in Las Vegas, Nevada, and we moved out there. And he had a job in computers there. And I started going back into graduate school and got a master's under an ecologist. There wasn't any astronomy department there either. And then I finished up by going to the University of Missouri and got a PhD from the uh, College of Veterinary Medicine and did a lot of experiments on cows and burrows and things like that. And then I went to um, Cornell with a postdoc and became a professor uh, at St. Bonaventure. And then my husband changed jobs and we moved to Ohio where my family lived. 
and I worked at the Ohio Department of Health as a <clears throat> as a toxicologist, the uh, Ohio State University Medical School on a grant, and also worked at Mattel, uh, Mattel Memorial Institute, and for popular science at different times. I had full-time jobs and several part-time jobs. And so then I retired and um, I was interested in UFOs, but in science, you um, are, <laughs> it doesn't go over well. And so I was in the closet for a long time on UFOs. I was going to ask, like, obviously, with having such a scientific background, how did you make that sort of get into the UFO world? Well, I started um, and didn't exactly go around telling anybody, but they found out. And so I got teased a lot and harassed and everything. You know, everybody walked and say, oh, do you see a UFO and all that? Mm. But um, then I retired and I submitted a manuscript to Flying Disc Press, um, Philip Mantle, who accepted it. And since then, I've <laughs> four UFO books with that, and with him and that. And he's a real good publisher and I'm very happy about it. You mentioned that you were working with the Defense and um to the Defense Intelligence Agency uh -huh. on, the, on the satellite image. Was there any sort of talk back then about a sort of unidentified aircraft that we've like, seen with the satellites or anything like that? Yeah, but it wasn't um, it wasn't anything that was formal. Um, when I was working for air order battle, I'd had a sighting, but I didn't want to go around, you know, I was the only, practically the only female there for one thing. I didn't want to go around saying, I saw a UFO. <clears throat> but I mentioned it and I mentioned, you know, I just mentioned UFOs abstractly and I thought everybody harassed me about that. But my supervisors said that they had um, seen what they thought was a UFO on our, 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 our film was real classified, but they saw what they thought was a UFO and um, reported it to their supervisors. And the supervisors told him it wasn't there. It was a spot on the film, which is real funny because it was on two films. <laughs> so it definitely wasn't spot on the film. And um, so either there was something classified that they weren't telling us or they didn't know what they were doing with the government. You never know. But my supervisors went to some specialists that identify spots on the film and they said, no, it wasn't a spot on the film. It was on two um, different photographs so we could get it in stereo. And so I thought that was a very funny thing. Apparently my supervisors didn't have any more clearance than I did for identifying UFOs. But way, way back then, I thought the DIA probably had something, knew something about UFOs. I mean, now they're the ones that put out the video and everything. Their job is, you know, to look down from satellite photography and identify flying objects that are flying and you know parked on air force base on air bases too so were the um was this object over american airspace no it was over the middle east and um i think it was um east of the black sea i'm not too sure back then it was communist territory that's why the security clearance was so high was because it, um satellites went over <clears throat> um communist areas and russian things did you um 
see anything else that you would sort of classify yourself as sort of unidentified? No, because I was sort of UFO dormant at the time. I'd had sightings and I was aware of them, but it's something you didn't talk about. And so I didn't really look for anything like that. Obviously, it's been quite some years since this sighting that was on the two films. Have you tried like to try and find any information about it through like the official channels that they could have had some information back then? No, I think the, so far as I know this, the actual photography is still classified, but I obviously don't have a clearance because I'm not working for the DIA anymore. Outside of the, obviously, working for the government, you had any personal sightings, like just yourself that you've seen? Yeah, I'd had them for some time, but um, I didn't even know it. Um, when my sister and I were real young, we were pretty poor and we didn't have any media and we were living in an old farmhouse and sleeping in an attic room. And one time when we were real young, I was about six and she was about four, we think, um, we saw this thing flying around our room and um, it looked like a little piece of hot metal and me, it looked like hot iron. It was just a tiny little thing. It was a real tic-tac I and mean, it looked like a, a cough drop or something, or a real tic-tac, <laughs> which didn't come in until later. But um, it sort of glowed and looked like hot iron. <clears throat> it was flying around the room. And at that young age, I noticed something weird was it seemed to know where things were. It was The room was dark. It was in summer and it was good weather. And the room, was, the doors were closed and the window was screened. Um, so I don't know how it got in, but... Um, it was flying around and I noticed that it sort of like it knew where things were because it didn't bump into anything. It would come to furniture and turn and go around it or it would go to a wall and turn. And it got close to both of us. But at that age, um, all we had was a radio and I never heard of UFOs or spacemen or aliens or anything. So it was a long time before I'd ever heard of UFOs after that, but it flew up to the ceiling and it turned before it got to the ceiling and flew along the ceiling and flew to a chandelier in the middle of the room. And we had walls that slanted up to a place in the ceiling and were about three feet apart and the chandelier was down. What well, flew over the chandelier and it seemed to know where the chandelier was and where the walls were, it didn't feel its way around or anything. And it circled the chandelier and then it came down in a spiral and my sister and I just suddenly became terrified and ran out of the room shrieking and screaming. And we were so scared, we bumped into each other and fell down the stairs. Then we scrambled to get the door open and we were so scared, it took us a while and ran to our parents and they um, told us we were lying or something and making it up. But um, later I read a book by Jenny Randalls about, um, it was much later, about bedroom sightings of young children. And sometimes young children have bedroom sightings of objects, it's like small globes or tiny discs or something. And then later, the same people have um, UFO sightings. And it happens to one person normally, but my sister and I were maybe the only people that had um, that happened when we were young and then had UFO sightings together when we were older too. But um, 
it was pretty strange because we both must have woke up at the same time because we both remember flying around the room. Then we both became terrified at the same time. It was like mind control or something way back then because we didn't know why we woke up at the same time. We didn't know, you know, why we suddenly became terrified either. And it was years, a number of years before I ever heard of UFOs or anything like that. How big was the object? You said it was small and whizzing around the room, but what sort of size, just so we can sort of picture that? I'd say it was pretty small. It was maybe half an inch or something, but the glow around it was larger. Okay. So could you tell it was sort of like more solid in the middle, if you say it was sort of the light made it sort of appear larger? It reminded me of um, hot iron. Like if you, you know, they show pictures of hot iron, Mm-hmm. Um, molten iron that's sort of a reddish and sort of glows well that's what it looked like to me How did that sighting sort of compare to the sightings that you had like, as an adult? Yeah we had several sightings and um, one was after we grew up I was working for the DIA that's one reason I mentioned it, the DIA um, and my sister was at Drew University taking postgraduate work and so we were on the East Coast, and we decided to see the New England states and just go on a vacation. And I drew, drove up from Washington, picked her up in, at Drew University, and we went to Boston. And we were planning to stay all night at Boston and drive up along the New England states. But it was daylight when I got there. This was before cell phones or anything. So we drove up to New Hampshire and drove into New Hampshire for a ways and came back. And then um, we were in Boston looking for a place to stay, but we couldn't find any place because everything was full. And so we were leaving Boston. South of us, there was an airport that we could watch as we were driving out of Boston. And there were, it was a small airport. It was Norwood Memorial Airport. And we could see airplanes coming in with turning their landing lights on. And it'd have the regular red and green wing lights and strobe lights and things and landing lights and we'd watch the airplanes as we were driving but they're down lower than the airplanes was a light and it was blinking and it was very very white but there were no other lights and it seemed to be following the road down and so my sister started saying this might be a ufo and she was watching it i was just driving and so I told her, no, it was a helicopter blinking its landing lights on. And that made no sense at all because I'd never seen anything like it. And it didn't look like a helicopter <laughs> blinking its landing lights on. But being a scientist, I <clears throat> explained it. And so we kept on. And we turned on Route 95, which is the north-south freeway along the coast, and went by a woods. And in the woods, I saw this sphere. And inside was a light that seemed to be going through uh, it seemed to be going through a spectrum of red and blue. It goes all shades of red and all shades of blue. And I couldn't figure out what it was. And then the inside of the tar- car turned green. And I was wondering why on earth our car is green on the inside and what this thing was. And then um, the green went away and we were past the um, thing. And so we drove on. And then my sister said that this thing, this other thing we'd been watching, was going to go over the road and she started screaming at me to stop and pull over and I thought she'd just gone nuts and um, 
I stopped and pulled over and pointed my hand out and was going to say, dingbat, see, it's a helicopter. And I pointed my hand out and um, it was a, I saw a meteor way off. And then this thing came over the trees. It was real slow and low. It had seven um, windows that were bright, very brightly lit. And we discussed whether these are panels or windows. And we both thought they were windows. Um, we'd seen blimps with lighted sides. And I even have a YouTube channel that I show pictures of blimps flying along with their lighted sides and things. So we knew what those were. Um, but anyway, it had these seven windows that were square and big and very distinctive so you could see them. And it had one red light on one end and one green light on the other. These were very tiny lights that didn't blink. And so I decided she was right. And I was in my basic job at the DIA was photography. And I had a, <clears throat> a Polaroid camera in the car and um, high speed film. And so I needed to grab the film and find the camera in the dark and get it loaded. But I did. And I thought I could just take an amazing picture because if I got it on stereo and several uh, pictures, I might get background and show this object. And I just thought this is fantastic. And then a truck driver pulled over and the man came up and I thought, oh, we'll have another witness. Well, he came up and stood right beside me and said, what are you doing? And I pointed like it was a, I didn't say, you know, UFO around strange truck driver man or something, but I said, um, I pointed like it was an airplane asked him, you know, well, we were watching that or asking what it was or something. And he just rotated around, pointed his head in the exact opposite direction and said, I don't see anything. Then he rotated around, looked at me again. And by that time, you know, I was sort of nervous around him to start with. And after that, I was really nervous, but he asked me the same question. And I again pointed at him and said, what's that or something? And he turned around in the exact opposite direction and said, I don't see anything. And then he uh, sort of pointed at his head or gave a gesture like I'm crazy and went back to his truck. Well, then I, the thing was, my sister said that it took me a long, when she wrote up our uh, account, she said it took me a real long time to get my camera ready. And then the object we were watching suddenly was in a different place. And I didn't notice that, but until, she, until I read her report later, years later. But by that time, it seemed like the thing was a lot farther away. And after the truck driver went back, and I missed a, just a wonderful photograph, but I was on the freeway, and I was afraid I'd get lens flares, and there was a hill. And so I decided to run up the hill, and my sister tried to stop me. And I didn't understand. I kept telling her she had to guard the car from the truck driver, and she didn't seem to understand what I meant. But anyway, I went up the hill. And I got a picture. I got several pictures, but one of them turned out pretty well. And it was very complex, but I eventually wrote it up in a scientific journal. But I came back down the hill and the object went to the um, airport and it began circling. And I found out later, I think the airport was closed at that time, I'm not sure. But um, it would go from a half circle from south to north and it'd blink on twice during that time. Then go north to south. It was so fast you just couldn't even see it. You just sort of knew it went back in the half circle and then it circled for a long time. Well, I thought it had been going south and for some reason I thought it was going to go north. 
And so I was going to turn my car around. And I mean, I was going to get on the freeway and go to the next intersection, turn my car around and go north. Although I didn't know where it was going to go, actually. But I got on the freeway and the truck driver got right in behind me and began chasing us. And he would, he showed me his headlights right in our mirror where I, so that I was blinded. And I switched lanes and slowed down, speeded up. He just kept right on my bumper. And I thought he was going to kill us. And finally, um, I decided to uh, go off the road real fast at the next intersection without signaling or anything. I thought, you know, maybe he won't be able to find us, to get us. And I did. And it was real dangerous to do that because if somebody had been coming up on the right side, we'd have been in trouble. That was from the left side of the road. And so I got off the freeway and turned the car around and went um, back. And by that time, the thing had started, stopped circling and it was going northwest. And so um, I went back up the uh, freeway and saw the funny light again and the inside of the light turned green again. And then I kept following it, but I finally wound up on this real bad gravel road with houses and miles apart and bumps and everything. I couldn't keep up with it. And I was totally disappointed because I couldn't get the picture. And my sister was amazed because she didn't see anything inside it. And she kept wondering what's inside of it. So I went back and we went all the way back to Drew University and spent the night. Um, I mean, it was six o'clock in the morning, but I went to sleep for a while. And then later I drove back to Washington and then I had a poltergeist experience. Um, and then, so it was a very long sighting that took a long time and covered a lot of geography too. <laughs> We've got to ask, uh, what was the poltergeist experience? That night I got back late because I was trying to pick up the men I took up to New York and they never showed up and they were mad at me later and said I you couldn't find me and I don't know why. But anyway, I got back late, it was dark. And I went to, um, I was going to bed and um, I kept hearing somebody walking in my room like a man with shoes on and like you'd take three steps and then he'd be someplace else and there'd be three steps or something. And there was a little light coming from a street light, but I couldn't see anybody. And if it sounded close, I tried to grab it, but I couldn't feel anything. But I just kept hearing this thing like somebody was walking in my room and I was pretty scared. So I, but any, anyway, in regards to that, I went to sleep. And then the alarm went off and I woke up and I thought it was morning and got up and I realized it was still dark. And I looked at my clock and it was 1.30. And I had this alarm clock that um, had the little knob broken off and it was real hard to turn it with my hands. And I usually used pliers and I couldn't set it, you know, plus or minus 15 minutes or so if I tried with my hands. Well, anyway, I was pretty terrified and I put a chair against the door, which obviously didn't do any good because if somebody was in my door putting a chair against, <laughs> I mean, in my room putting a chair against, but I did. And in spite of being terrified, I went back to sleep. Well, my alarm went off at 2.30, 3.30, 4.30, I think 5.30, right on the dot, just like set, which I couldn't even do. And then um, at 5.30 or, or whatever, I woke up. I was very scared because I had this high security clearance and I'd never heard of poltergeist. I thought I'd just gone insane. And so I was sitting there 
on my bed trying to figure out what to do at work if I <laughs> had to disguise being insane. And my toothbrush flew across the room and hit the wall. And I was really, really, really worried. But I went to work and didn't talk to anybody much. And then everything was over with. So it didn't last <laughs> very long. But what I did next was I couldn't report it because of my job. But I wrote everything I could possibly think of down because I intended to, you know, report it later. Do you have any idea who or what that could have been? No, I have no idea what it was. And um, I was later investigated by several people like Bud Hopkins and um, Dr. Heineck and things like that. And it was unidentified. Um, back then, you couldn't, there wasn't an internet or anything. You know, if it happened to me now, I would check with the airport and everything else. But back then it was, you know, there wasn't any internet or computers or anything. Um, I looked up the phone director UFOs and I found NICAP and I went to a pay phone because <laughs> my phone to be traced and called and reported it, but I didn't give my name or anything. So they wouldn't have had a formal report, but I, you know, due to my job, I was afraid of actually giving my name or anything like that. So do you think that the sighting and the poltergeist experience were linked? Um, well, at the time, I'd never heard of poltergeist. I mean, I was in science and I, you know, so I thought I'd been insane. But later I heard, heard about poltergeist and like people like Kathleen Marden, who's a UFO investigator, has said that often people that um, have close UFO encounters have poltergeist experiences. And so I found that out years later too. Um, I mean, I linked it because I didn't want to think I was crazy. I had something to do with the UFO. <laughs> How do you, um, so being from the science background uh, and having the science qualifications, um, there's, how did your sort of brain try and compute what was happening based on the fact that with science, everything's quite, say, black and white and it, it deals with facts that you can prove? Well, that's what I thought earlier, but since then, I'm still interested in science and physics and astronomy. I've been reading a lot of and taking courses, like I took two from Harvard online courses about quantum theory, current mechanics. And with the old like Newtonian mechanics, well, UFOs make no sense at all. But with quantum mechanics, it's so weird that <laughs> UFOs fit right in. <laughs> they don't seem weird. Do you have a particular theory about where they might come from or who they are about or what they are like, from your beliefs? No, I probably should, but um, I just have no idea. I mean, I would sort of think they're um, maybe linked with poltergeist things and maybe they're both the same thing. I mean, maybe poltergeists look like ghosts sometimes. Maybe they look like UFOs for all I know, but I don't. I just, what I think is, is that as humans, we're probably pretty primitive and like quantum mechanics has been around for a long time and nobody seems to know anything about it or, you know, uh, link UFOs to anything like that. But I think that probably it's just my feeling that we're um, primitive and something is observing us or making little experiments on us and things like that.
So on that note, do you think that like the society or whatever they're coming from, they're just too advanced for them to have any sort of meaningful contact or engagement with us? We just they're just too far ahead of us. I just don't know. Um, some people seem to have real engagements where they talk to beings and things. And so far as I know, I didn't, and we didn't, but I just don't know. We seem to fit in a pattern where people see things when they're young and see them when they're older, but that's <laughs> all I can say. And, you know, all different kinds of people seem to see them, but um, including scientists, and they always say scientists don't see UFOs. Well, I think scientists see just as many as anybody else, but you're not allowed to talk about it if you want to keep your job. <laughs> so talking about other people that have seen them, you, you, you said that you've had some shared experiences with your sister. Have you discussed between you what you think they were and why that you've had these multiple experiences together? Well, when that happened, we didn't see each other for five or six years because she went to Brazil and became a missionary and I married and went to Las Vegas, Nevada. And we didn't see each other for years. And then when we came back, we discussed it a little bit, but not much because <laughs> we were in the closet, especially, you know, me with my job. And so we didn't say much, but just very recently, I found out, um, my sister found a letter that she'd written to my mother that morning after we saw the UFO and when we came back to Drew and after I'd left, I guess. And so I asked her about that man because it was sort of funny because she always said, well, that man didn't see it, but she, she never knew why the man didn't see it. So I asked her and she said, well, she didn't see the man. I mean, she saw him when we, when he chased our car, but when I talked to him, she didn't know he was there. And that's why she, you know, she didn't know she was supposed to guard the car. And so for some reason, I saw this man that was acting crazy. And she at the same time was watching the object. And I don't know whether she was just watching it so hard and paying so much attention to why she couldn't see anything on the inside that she was just concentrating or what. But it seemed like I was the only person that saw this crazy man. Um, and that really, I mean, I just found that out recently and it gives you the creeps because maybe he was pointing to his head like I was crazy and maybe she didn't even see him, which is pretty weird. <laughs> so you mentioned, or Ash just mentioned about what you think they might be or, or what they, where they are from. Um, now one of our regular listeners on the podcast actually put up a a theory and I just wanted to run that by you as to to what he thought it might be and he said what if the greys or whoever are just more advanced beings further along the evolutionary line but no further along in their quest for answers to the big question as to why we're all here so by abducting and studying uh, us as humans as we are now they're just trying to get answers as well could be I thought it was quite an interesting theory, and it was something I hadn't thought about. So they're, they're, they are more advanced than us, but not really, if you see what I mean. Yeah, because they don't know everything. Yeah, I mean, I never heard of that, but that's a good no. theory. <laughs> yeah. 
big thanks to Nick for that one. <laughs> so talking of abductions, uh, you've done a lot of work into the Calvin Parker abduction, uh-huh. uh, which is one of the most famous sort of classic abduction stories. So just a bit of brief background for those that might not know about it. It's 1973. Uh, Calvin Parker and Charles Hickson are fishing on the pass. <laughs> Forgive me if I pronounce it wrong. It's Pasagoula <laughs> River in uh, Mississippi. And they, saw, they hear some noises, saw some lights, and then they saw an object in the sky. Next thing they know, there's these creatures, and they're taken aboard the object and examined. So what got you, how did you get into sort of doing a lot of work on the Calvin Parker case? Well, I got into it for two reasons. One was is that I had published my books with Philip Mantle, and he was became real interested in Calvin Parker and that abduction. And back in those days, people didn't talk about it much, but since then, a number of people come forward and said, yeah, we saw something too. There were a lot of... Um, sightings because the sheriff there at that time said there were 50 reported sightings of UFOs that same night and a whole lot of other ones. And so anyway, Philip wanted somebody to um, interview these people, but he's over in Europe and has an accent and he wanted an American to interview some. And so he asked me to, and I set up so I could you know, tape record it with their permission and things. But there was another reason from way back why I was interested too. And that was the abduction was uh, on the 11th of October, 73. And back then I was at the University of Missouri doing graduate work. And one night I got a phone call from my mother who said she just heard a big noise and she wondered if I heard it. Well, she was in Ohio and I was in Missouri. And so I immediately teased her all over the place and said, you know, that's 600 miles away and asked her if she was crazy and things like that. But she was kind of serious. And then several days, she was, she's a skeptic. And several days later, she called and said there was a huge UFO wave going on in Ohio and, that, um, and all over. That uh, UFO chased her friend's car and people were keeping their kids in at night and staying in at night and things like that that just sounded like a war zone. Well, nothing that I was paying attention to happened in Missouri and I was in the closet, of course, and working on my <laughs> doctor, which was enough. And so I didn't pay attention. Um, but years later, I was working at Ohio State <clears throat> and they had a newspaper room where you could go in and look at actual newspapers and, um, so one day, just on a whim, I just went in and decided to see when that noise was. And I didn't, I had no idea when it was, but I thought it was the middle of October in 73. And I didn't really expect to find anything, but I guessed and I found it. A little tiny note about a big noise and it had a date. So I kept continuing to research that. And it was pretty weird because it was a huge noise that was covered um, about half the U.S., and um, it was just huge in area, and nobody could explain what caused it, and so anyway, I, I just did research. I was just interested, and I wrote it up 
for a scientific journal and submitted it. And this state uh, seismologist from Ohio contacted me. And he was interested too and helped me do some research. And I actually published about that in a peer-reviewed scientific journal, but I didn't find anything. And it turned out that that was um, the same night as the Parker abduction, maybe about the same time. And then later, um, they always say scientists are debunkers, but the scientists I started working with were very helpful. Later, I published something about the MUFON journal and I got debunked there by somebody saying it was an airplane, an SR-71. And I weakly debunked him back and said, no, the sound was a different place than the airplane. But I didn't have too much, I didn't know too much. And then since then, NASA has come out with a lot more information about sonic booms and that sort of thing. And so I could, you can, use, you can get a lot more information from, about newspapers and things. I did a search of newspaper articles on the next day that reported the sound because it made um, newspapers all across the country. And I could get the size of the sound and sort of the speed of the sound, things like that. And um, so my book debunks my debunker back and says this was a mysterious sound, <laughs> but it happened. The sound was the same time as the abduction, but the abduction was down in the southern part of the U.S. And the flap and the, I mean, there was a big flap in um, Pasigula, but there was also a huge flap going on at the same time north of that. And the sound happened at the same time, but it was part of the flap. And so I had started on the sound way, way, way back. And I hadn't even paid too much attention to the abduction. I was just interested in the sound. So obviously, like I say, it's quite one of the famous cases. And it has come in for quite a lot of skepticism as well, as a lot of these cases do. Um, and Charles Hickson, who's the guy that was with Calvin Parker, who refused to take a polygraph test. Uh, what are your thoughts about that sort of side of the story and the skepticism towards it? Well, it was when it started, they didn't know, you know, they weren't UFO people or didn't know anything about reporting it. And Calvin didn't want a reporter say anything because, you know, you could get in trouble and everybody make fun of him. But Hickson was older and he'd been through the war and had life and death situations and things. And he was sort of able to adapt to it a lot better. And at first they decided not to say anything, but then um, Hickson decided to say something. And he reported to, first of all, to um, the Kessler Air Force Base. And they told him that the Air Force no longer collects information on UFOs. They don't exist and all that. So they told him to call local authorities. So he called the police. And I talked to a, one of the police that was off some distance and, you know, just heard, and he heard the report on <laughs> the police radio then that um, the police had picked up two drunks that were claiming they had seen a UFO and that sort of, you know, was the atmosphere. But anyway, the police, um, Hickson called and told him, and he said, you won't believe this. And, you know, he, <laughs> he felt weird saying it, but, you know, they, they paid attention to it because apparently they could hear Calvin sort of crying in the background saying, don't say anything. And so they had him come into the police station and they interviewed him separately and then put him together in a room and interviewed him. And then the interviewer walked out. And what they didn't know was there was a tape in the room 
to tape record him and the police were expecting him to you know laugh after the man left and say oh we put that over on it was a hoax and everything well, instead the men were just terrified and they didn't sound rehearsed or anything they sounded like they were terrified just had a real clipped conversation about what happened you know and I think Calvin said he thought he died and things like that and they were just um very very shook up and it was obvious and so when the police went and got the tape <clears throat> they realized that the people were sincere and that went a long ways toward supporting them because it wasn't something you'd really fake and then another thing was is that calvin didn't talk about it for around 50 years <laughs> he wanted fame he would have talked about it back then but he just wanted to be a normal person and he didn't talk about it for years and there were other reasons um i mean i talked to the doctor that examined them right afterwards and he said yeah they were very very shook up especially calvin i think he had a nervous breakdown afterwards and so anyway there were a lot of things that made people think they were that something really happened that they weren't just lying or something do you know if the friends or family of the two guys sort of treated him differently after this incident happened have you spoken to to that side of the family well calvin was engaged and um i think somebody somewhere said that he told his fiance well you didn't have to marry him and things like that but you know they were both you know they wanted to get married and everything they were normal people and they got married but she said that um he never talked about it until just uh, several years ago even to her i mean i interviewed her too and she was sort of who encouraged him finally to talk about it her and philip mantle so obviously that has quite a profound uh, effect on people um and people we've spoken to also have had it has a profound impact on their life um when you first started looking into to this particular case could you tell that they believed what they were saying and that what they were saying was the truth well calvin is a very sincere person i mean everybody that talks to him trusts him he has, you know he doesn't give any idea that you know being deceptive or anything he just and he doesn't he still says the same thing he said way back then um except he didn't talk about it for 50 years which makes you think he's pretty sincere his wife said that right after it happened that he developed a tick in his mouth it was so stressful for him that he developed a tick and then um you know he just didn't want to have anything to do with it for a long time and he had a nervous breakdown afterwards and the whole thing was just terribly terribly stressful and if you're just making up something it wouldn't be you know you just laugh at it and say oh but you know it really affected him and one thing about it a lot of the abduction stories come later and through hypnosis and that sort of thing well this was something they remembered right then and they were immediately interviewed and most people don't turn it in for a long time or say anything about it and maybe because of hickson's experience in the army well he he thought he could you know stand up to all the harassment and things and went ahead which was good because they got a <clears throat> report from right after it happened what's your thoughts on using techniques like hypnotic regression especially in 
sort of these experience cases? I don't know. Um, they were hypnotized right afterwards. And I think if I was doing <laughs> I would wait a week or two and hypnotize them later. Um, but the two, the two um, people that, two of the people investigated were both top professors. I mean, Dr. Heineck was at Ohio State. He had been, uh, he was a professor and he was head of the department, astronomy department at Northwestern. And he had a good position in astronomy and did a lot of research. So he was, you know, he was respected in his field. And the other one was a um, University of Berkeley, I think, a top professor too. And they both questioned him and thought they were sincere. And the other people that talked to him thought they were sincere, but they got a lot of harassment too. So we sort of mentioned there a little bit, touched on Jalen Hynek. And obviously you've got your history working with the, the, the government and the intelligence community. Now one of your books, which is called UFOs Today, 70 Years of Lies, Misinformation and Government Cover-Up. With all the latest sort of developments that have been happening in the last couple of years with the videos being genuinely released, the formation of a new UFO office being proposed, do you think it's changed now? Or is it more the same that you've experienced over the years? No, I think it's changed. And that's why we're getting um, some of those 50 people that <laughs> called the police but were scared to say anything back then. Um, we're getting, you know, other witnesses and there were a number of people who reported seeing things at that time. I mean, at that time, there were quite a few other people that saw something weird, but they didn't say anything about it. And now we're um, finding a lot of other people are coming forward because UFOs are more respectable. Also, since 50 years ago, they found other planets and things like that. I mean, other solar systems with, you know, around galaxies and things. So it's not so weird that, you know, the people think, you know, if we're here, there might be lots of other planets that have beings on them too, or other types of beings. So it's not as weird as it was back then because it's more logical. Based on the uh, the, the US government's history of this topic, and obviously you got Project Blue Book, then you got the ATIP and the other offices that have been investigating UFOs, they've always denied it, they've always lied about it. Do you think that we'll be able to trust them? So if they come out and say, this is the truth, this is what's happened, do you think that we could ever say, okay, we now believe you based on the history? Well, I think it'd be hard for the Air Force to come out and say, well, we've been lying to you for <laughs> 70 years, but they probably have. Um, when Project Blue Book, it's, it, its forerunner was Project Sign, and Project Sign way back in 1947 did a decent job of, um, of investigating and they s concluded that there may be beings from other planets or things here. They concluded that there were things here that we didn't understand as our science and things. Then that turned into Project Grudge and Project Grudge was debunking. And then that turned into Project Blue Book, which <clears throat> also mainly was debunking. S since then, 2017, the New York Times had an article about a spatial investigation done by the government and then um this year the government has coughed up some information saying <laughs> yeah something may be here that we don't know what it is and 60 minutes has had it on and you know a lot of pilots have said yes we saw this they had it on radar and everything else 
And so in my book um, about the uh, Pascagoula, well, there were two things that happened. One was the abduction, but there also was, it made the news twice, made the national news twice. The other one was an um, USO, an underwater submerged object. And this was investigated by the Navy. And they did a serious investigation. I mean, these two things happened pretty close together in time and space. And the Navy did a very serious investigation of theirs. It might've been the same object for anybody, you know, but then um, I mentioned in the book that the Navy seemed to take it more seriously than the Air Force did. And then now uh, most of the information is from the Navy and the DIA, which I worked at for. And I thought back then <laughs> the DIA knew a lot more than they um, coughed up information on. <laughs> Do you think it takes sort of people like pilots and military witnesses to make it a more credible subject rather than your average man in the street that's seeing the light in the sky. So it's got to be this official reports that are coming in. Yeah, well, I think, you know, probably there's an, maybe there's an even distribution of pilots and other people that see UFOs, but with the um, army intelligence, you know, if they're on um, radar and several people see them, and all that, well, there's more to substantiate whether they're actually there or not. I mean, if, some, if it lands in somebody's yard and then takes goes away, well, I mean, that's a close counter. And it probably, you know, lots of times it probably happened, but the person can't prove it. And with the Navy information, there is um, several ways to measure and say something. You think with a lot of the recent developments, we got Bill Nelson from NASA saying, he thinks as life from other universes. We had uh, Avril Haynes, the head of the intelligence, saying this could be extraterrestrial things that we're seeing. Are we being, do you think that we are being drip, drip fed disclosure? Yeah, I mean, I hope so. Um, a lot of people said, well, nobody said much, and, you know, they were hoping for more. Well, I was happy with what <laughs> small mouth that dribbled out myself. And that was another thing I was interested in, that sound I was um, investigated. There was something to prove it was there. I mean, it was on two seismographs and things like that. And so um, I think there's been evidence from way back with radar and visual, and they just ignored it but, and explained it away to the public. But I think they're having more trouble doing that now. Do you think we will see full disclosure in our lifetime? Well, I thought um, maybe just having the government say there's things here that we don't understand, <laughs> maybe disclosure. I mean, it's not going very far, but um, that the doors open a little bit. And that's, a, that's what people have been hoping for for a long time. I mean, like in 1952, there were UFOs flying over the... Um, airspace of you know Washington DC with the radar visual sightings and everything the government just explained it away and said nothing happened <laughs> I wrote I wrote uh, I just recently had an article published in the MUFON journal about disclosure and way back in 1953 the government had the um, Robertson panel and the Robertson panel said there's nothing to it there's nothing 
no effect on national security. I don't know how they can say that if you don't know what they are, but all that. But I worked at Battelle, not then, but I knew people that worked there and they were doing a secret study of UFOs for Project Blue Book. And I wrote the disclosure information that um, while the government was saying they don't exist, they were actually doing a top secret study to find out about them. So they were lying. Yeah, I think that's been quite a lot of sort of same pattern. And one of the things that a lot of people talk about in this subject is things like crash retrievals, got technology from ships or crafts that have crashed and been retrieved. What's your thoughts on that? Do you think that we've there's, there's been crash retrievals? Well, there was information that they sent. I mean, they sound like it's ephemeral, but actually there's pretty good proof that Roswell sent uh, material to Wright-Patterson. And that is because there was somebody that was on air broadcasting at the time they were sending it. And right on air, he said that he had just called Wright-Patterson and they were expecting the arrival of the airplane with the material. The airplane went from Roswell to um, Fort Worth and then to Wright-Patterson, but that's uh, real good documentation. They sent something to Wright-Patterson. And then I had information from Jenny Zeidman about three of the directors of Battelle who all were favorable about UFOs and one of them okayed the secret project, um, the secret study, uh, special report 14, saying that he thought maybe they would find real science. Exxon, of course, with uh, Smitten, uh, Carey reported that he said, you know, there was something to it. And another uh, president of Battelle was on the Pentacle memorandum that was about the Robertson panel saying that Mattel didn't have the information yet. So the Robertson panel shouldn't be coming to conclusions, which the Robertson panel did. Awesome. Uh, so you mentioned, you, you, I know you got quite a few books out. I think you said there's four that are on that UFO subject, including Beyond Pasigala, which is the Calvin Park abduction. Uh, where can our listeners find your books and where can they find more information about you as well? Um, my books are all on Amazon.com and I have a, um, a website, irenascott.com, that um, shows my books and you can click on a book and go right to Amazon.com. I'll be giving a talk at the Mega UFO Conference um, in Las Vegas in March. Awesome. Yeah, about UFOs and this. So, and my books are um, Beyond Pascagoula UFOs Today, Sacred Corridors, and Inside the Lightning Ball. And they're all on Amazon.com and they're all published by Flying Disc Press. Brilliant. Well, I thank you for chatting to us. It's been fascinating hearing about your history, your sightings, as well as the work into Calvin Parker and everything else so yeah thank you for sharing your stories with us thank you very much well thank you very much for having me pursuit of the paranormal with ash and greg